The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to This is Catholicism on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Jason Guardiano, and on this episode, I'm joined by Father Philip Eldrocker. Welcome, Father, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you. Uh, next in the Harv's Catechism, Part 1 on Faith, Chapter 2, The Chief Truths of Faith, the eighth article, I Believe in the Holy Ghost. We invite you to follow along if you have the book. There's a link to the PDF in the episode notes. Uh, now, Father, uh, we'll just go ahead with these questions from the Catechism as uh, they will uh, take us in order. All right. Question one. By whom is the fruit or grace of the divine redemption communicated to us? Well, the answer is very short, and that's, I think, how I should start out. It says, uh, by the Holy Ghost. And by the Holy Ghost... The, well, I guess we'll look at that in a minute, but the, the Holy Ghost is the, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, and so in today's show, we'll be speaking about the Holy Ghost and what the Holy Ghost does with regards first to the Church in general and the human race, and then with regards to individual souls. Now, I suppose, uh, before we go further, is there a difference between the use Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit? Well, that's a good question, and actually, in the strict sense, there is, and then that's why the creed says, I believe in the Holy Ghost. If you think about it, the there are many, many Holy Spirits, because the angels are spirits, the souls of the saints are spirits. And so to, to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, there's some ambiguities as to who you're actually speaking about. So the the, the proper term is actually Holy Ghost to distinguish him from all of the other blessed spirits. Question two, where is this grace communicated to us? And this continues where I, I mentioned that we'd speak about the, the Holy Ghost mission to the church. And in, grace is communicated to us in the Catholic Church. And we have the, the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the Church, which is, of course, recorded in Sacred Scripture in the Acts of the Apostles. But that, that is the first sort of public mission to the, the whole world that, that we see recorded in, in Sacred Scripture of the Holy Ghost is his descent upon the Apostles on Pentecost. And that, that is the, the beginning of his work in a sense, in the Church, of course, he's been working the, the entire history of man, but the as far as, as it goes with the Church, that, that is the, the beginning, is the descent of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost. Number three, who is the Holy Ghost? The Holy Ghost is the third person of the Blessed Trinity, 
true God with the Father and the Son. So the Holy Ghost is God. It's it's a little difficult to, to understand. Of course, we can't truly understand it because it's a it's a mystery of faith. But it is it is revealed, and it is it's very very explicit in, in sacred scripture that there are the three persons of the Blessed Trinity, and even the Holy Scripture goes so far as to to give them names: the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that is actually recorded in the words of Christ Himself. So it's a, a big a big doctrine of of the Catholic Church is that the there are three persons in the Trinity, and they are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the the text which we have here gives a lot of references and notes, so we should look at them a little bit. The first, of course, we have, as I mentioned in the last show, we have the the first sort of proof is from sacred scripture, and there are a lot of a lot of quotations that regard the Holy Ghost in in sacred scripture. We have the first one that the book lists is in the Acts of the Apostles. It's uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who essentially tried to cheat the apostles and make everyone think that they were more holy than they really were. And so they they sold some property, and they came and made a big deal of it as, as if they were giving uh, all the money that they had just made off their property to the apostles, to the church. And they weren't giving all of it. They were saving some back for themselves. So St. Peter, to whom they they gave the money, uh, received an inspiration that they had held something back. And even though they were pretending sort of to make the as if as if they had given everything. So the the quotation is, "Why hath Satan tempted thy heart that thou shouldest lie to the Holy Ghost? Thou hast not lied to men, but to God." So that that it does cut out a little bit of the, the in-between conversation there. But the general idea is is that you've lied to the Holy Ghost as a, an object of the person that you're lying to. And then St. Peter goes to say, thou hast lied to God by lying to the Holy Ghost. So if you have lied to God by lying to the Holy Ghost, therefore the Holy Ghost must be God. And so that, that's sort of a uh, going around it way of, of proving that the Holy Ghost is God, but it, it is a quotation from sacred scripture. Then we have the the, the quotation from the epistle of St. John, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And St. John very, very often speaks of Christ, or the second person of the Blessed Trinity, as the Word. So we have the the Father, is God and the first person of the Trinity, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, and the Holy Ghost. And so this is, uh, in a sense, these three are one, is the, you have three persons mentioned by name, and these three are one, they're one God. So that, that is another proof, both of the Trinity and of the divinity of the Holy Ghost. Um, then sacred scripture also in various places, they give you all the quotations here in the in the uh, text, but it attributes divine perfections to the Holy Ghost, and that doesn't say in so many words the Holy Ghost is God because He does this. But whenever you have a divine perfection, something that only God is capable of, 
that sacred scripture attributes to to a person or to uh, an entity, really, at this point, we should probably say. The, the proof is, is because that act is being performed, the one performing it must be God. So the examples are that the book gives are omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, eternity. Essentially, that the Holy Ghost is is all powerful, is everywhere, knows all things, has always been, and so th- when it, a creature cannot be eternal, a creature cannot be everywhere, a creature cannot know all things. So to say that the, these things apply to the Holy Ghost is to is to essentially say that the Holy Ghost is God, and sacred scripture also. Um, attributes the divine works to the Holy Ghost, not just the perfections, which we already mentioned, but the, the works, the the creation, the regeneration, sanctification, communication of all spiritual gifts, and probably the, the most, in a sense, obvious is the, uh, the incarnation of Christ— as attributed to the Holy Ghost in sacred scripture, if we if we read uh, Saint Luke in his Gospel, the the idea that the Holy Ghost will overshadow the Virgin Mary, and as a result of this, she will conceive in her womb. That that is a completely miraculous and um, essentially above the the general speaking order of nature that the way things normally would occur, and so that. A virgin would conceive of a child without the influence of man, as as Our Lady says that she knows not man. That that is a a work which is only possible by the power of God, and so the fact that it's attributed to the power of the Holy Ghost is essentially a proof that the Holy Ghost is God. So then, first, the, the sacred scripture deals with the. The actual existence of the Holy Ghost, the fact that there is a Holy Ghost, and then it goes on to to distinguish the Holy Ghost as a person, and so often in sacred scripture you just have the Spirit of God, which is the one of the most common ways that the Holy Ghost is is referenced in sacred scripture, and so you think of him in a way from sacred scripture as the Spirit of God, and not necessarily as God himself. So then sacred scripture also goes on to prove that not only is the Holy Ghost God, but he is a distinct person. He's different from the the first person of the Trinity, the Father, and the second person, the Son. So the first quotation that the, the book gives us here is uh, Christ speaking in the Gospel of St. John. He says, I will ask the Father and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. So we have, in, in this passage, we have Christ speaking. He's going to ask the Father, and the Father is going to send the paraclete. So Christ obviously is different from the Father because he is asking the Father. You don't ask yourself things usually. And so when, <laughs> hopefully not. And if 
if he is going to ask the father to send someone else, that that is a, a distinct third party involved. And the spirit of truth is is named as that third party, the paraclete. So that, that is a representation of the Holy Ghost as distinct from the Father and the Son. Then the other reference that the book gives here is right at the beginning of, of Christ's public life. It's the baptism of Christ. And the quotation is, the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape as a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son. So once again, we have an event in, in sacred scripture. This is perhaps one of the most obvious because you have the Holy Ghost in bodily form. He's appearing as a dove. And at the same time, this dove, which is the Holy Ghost, is not the one who's speaking. You have the, the voice from heaven, which is uh, God the Father, or as the the Jews, in a sense, didn't really know about the Blessed Trinity because that, that is something that is so mystical and difficult to understand, it's actually impossible mm-hmm. to understand, that it was not revealed to the Jews in so many words because of the Jews' tendency to idolatry. If, if God said there are three persons in God, the Jews would set up three separate temples. And <laughs> so the divine persons of the Trinity were not in so many words, revealed to the Jews. So at this point, you have the voice from heaven, which is almost always in sacred scripture, is God. And so you have God speaking. You have the Holy Ghost in physical form, which is something that is very rare in sacred scripture. And then you have, of course, the fact that the the dove is descending upon Christ, Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So you have all three persons of the Trinity physically manifested at the same time, at the same place, in an event in sacred scripture. So that, that is a very, very strong proof of the existence of the three persons of the Trinity. And so that, that more or less covers the, the text in sacred scripture, which mention the Holy Ghost, at least as he is, as, as, as a person. Uh, there are many texts in sacred scripture that, which speak more of his action and his operation and the sanctification of of souls, but th- those are the the two big things that might not be immediately obvious from sacred scripture that there is a Holy Ghost, a third person of the Trinity, distinct from the Father and the Son. So then we move on to another sort of proof of the 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 Holy Ghost, and that is the the teaching of the Catholic Church and tradition. So we have the General Council of Constantinople in AD 381, which is pretty early in the history of the Church. And at that council, the the fathers of the Church unanimously condemned the heresy of Macedonius. So Macedonius was saying that the Holy Ghost was not God, just a essentially a a servant of God or an an action of God, not a distinct person. And so the the fathers declared uh, at the council that the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, is adored and glorified together with the Father and the Son. So that, that is the, the church um, essentially declaring and 
having a final say that, yes, there are three persons in the Trinity and the Holy Ghost is the third person. Question four is, from whom does the Holy Ghost proceed? And this is where we get into the difficult stuff. Yes, not without controversy. (laughs) (laughs) No, it isn't. And it's... It's actually quite difficult to understand. It's a, it's a mystery that the, the Trinity is a mystery. So it's not something that we will ever really perfectly understand, but we, we do the best we can. And so the, the text here says, the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son as from one source. So that this is a little difficult to understand because normally you think of, well, you have the Father and the Father has generated the Son and then... Well, oh, we have the Holy Ghost. What are we going to do? What are we going to? How? Where does He come from? And so, one explanation that that is given is, if if you will take sort of an analogy or from human thought, if you think of yourself, you you as a person think of yourself, and you create a mental picture of yourself, the the best that you can, down to your hair and what what size shoes you wear and how old you are, how many freckles you have, everything all. You try to create the very best picture of yourself in your mind that you can. Now, obviously, that, that picture is going to be just a flat a flat image in a sense. It's a, it's a picture of yourself. It's not you yourself in your mind. But when you have God, who is omnipotent, and he knows all things, so for God to to speak humanly to contemplate his own nature will create well will not create it will form a perfect image of himself so when god the father contemplates the divine essence you have the perfect essentially replication of that but not externally manifested this is all in God, this is not outside of God. It's like a, a picture that you might have of yourself in your head. But because God, being all-powerful and all-knowing, creates, and again, I use that word, that's not really the, the proper word to use, because then you get into heresy mm-hmm. as well. So you have, to be, <laughs> you have to be very careful when speaking about yes. the Trinity. So you have this perfect picture of the divine essence in, in the mind of God the Father. And because that image, if you will, is so perfect, it, in a sense, is God the Son, that, that perfect, not duplication, but image of the divine essence. And so because that image is so perfect, God the Son knows all things as well, and the knowledge of God of his own essence is so perfect that the, essentially the picture in his head is alive. It's, it's a, a, it has an intellect. And so you have the, God essentially duplicating himself, but as it were, in his own mind. And that, that is the, the second person of the Trinity. So you have if we go back to the human human analogy, you have you having a picture in, in your head, and 
unfortunately, most of us, the more we think about ourselves, the more we love ourselves, uh, <laughs> which, can, which can cause problems, uh, especially uh, with regards to uh, vanity. But in, in the case of God, you have God the Father who has formed this, this perfect image of himself, in a sense, in his head. It's, God doesn't have a body, so it's not in his head. But this perfect image of himself is so perfect that it is as lovable as God is himself. And so you have God the Father loving this image of himself, which is God the Son. And because the image is so perfect, the image is in turn able to love God the Father back. And so you have this this love of God which is the Holy Ghost, and it, it's not, you can't really understand it, but that's an explanation, very basic, based on the human idea of knowledge and will, that you create a, an image out of knowledge, and then that image, based on how good it is, is lovable. So you have the, the and in philosophy, that, that, that image that you create in your mind is called a mental word. So that is the the interpretation of Saint Augustine is that the the word that that Saint John speaks of in his gospel is really the best name for the second person of the blessed trinity is the the word of God. And so some people might say that Saint John was just using some figure of speech or something, but the Selection and choice of that particular term to designate the second person of the Trinity is actually very perfect and perhaps the best way of of denoting that it's the second person of the Trinity that you're speaking of. And so then you have the love of the two persons, which is so complete and so perfect that it forms the Holy Ghost. And I should, I suppose, look at the scriptural quotation that is given here in the book that uh, I will send to you, this is Christ speaking, I will send you the spirit of truth who proceedeth from the Father. And then the quote goes on, he shall receive of mine. So what this, what this text is showing is that, yes, the spirit of truth, the Holy Ghost, does proceed from the Father, but this spirit of truth, the Holy Ghost, shall receive of what is proper to the Son of mine, of, of Christ himself. So, if he is receiving something from the Son, he also is from the Son, because the messenger is, is sent by someone. And so, the, the Holy Ghost is from the Father and the Son. Question five, why is the third person of the Blessed Trinity in particular named the Holy Spirit, since the name of Spirit and Holy equally belongs to the first and to the second person? Well, that, that's a very a very good question, actually, because as as it says, the the idea of Spirit and Holy equally belong to the first and second persons of the Trinity. So if we look at the, the answer... The, the reason for this is that it is because it's the Holy Ghost who we 
principally ascribe the idea of sanctification. And it's the Holy Ghost who imparts to us the spiritual life of grace, which is, of course, a spiritual thing. So, generally speaking, in, in uh, Catholic teaching, you have the three, in a sense, functions of the persons of the Trinity. You have the idea of creation, which is, generally speaking, applied to God the Father. And then you have the redemption, which is generally attributed to God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And then you have the work of sanctification, which is generally attributed to the Holy Ghost, as the love of God. So the the whole idea of sanctification is an increase in love of God. So it's very fitting that the love of God is increased by the spirit of love. And so that, that is why we can call the, the Holy Ghost the Holy Spirit. And I guess the, the book is, in a sense, uh, disagreeing with me here because I said that it should be called the Holy Ghost. But as I said before, the term Holy Spirit is somewhat ambiguous, and so it, it is better to to always refer to the third person as the Holy Ghost, just to avoid um, right, right, right. confusion. Question six. Why is the work of our sanctification especially ascribed to the Holy Ghost? Well, I did sort of touch on this a little bit before in the last question, but it is because he, as the spirit of love, is the author of, of sanctity and the dispenser of supernatural gifts and graces by which we are sanctified. So, like I said earlier, the, the whole idea of sanctification being the increase in our love for God. It's attributed to the Holy Ghost, the, the work of sanctification. Now, any, any work of the Blessed Trinity, there is some, in a sense, mixture of the, the three persons involved, any work that is not the, the divine processions of the Trinity. There is some, in a sense, cooperation of all three persons, but it's attributed to especially the Holy Ghost because of his mission as the, the spirit of love. Now, question number seven. But is it not Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who sanctifies us? Ah, uh, yes. This this is one which I think is very, very topical when you're speaking with uh, Protestants, especially because the idea that Protestants have that Christ died for us on the cross, therefore, if we believe in Christ, that gives us a free ticket to mm-hmm. heaven, essentially. All you need to do is to believe in the redemption by Christ. And so, yes, in a sense, yes, Jesus Christ is the author of sanctification in as much as he has merited and prepared the grace of sanctification by dying on the cross for us and redeeming us. But it is the Holy Ghost who, in the practical order, actually does sanctify us, that is, to cleanse us from sin and make us just and pleasing to God. So you have Christ dying on the cross, yes, redeems the human race and does save us. We are saved through the passion of Christ. But Christ died on the cross only once, and obviously none of us were alive at that point. And so to to say that it is immediately... Christ died, we were saved sort of as a, 
a thing, an immediate consequence. This happened, and then this happened right afterwards. We weren't there, so <laughs> we, in a sense, were not saved just by the 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 death of Christ because he he died on the cross so many years ago, and we weren't there. But we are saved by the the passion and death of Christ. But it is through the application of the the merits of the sufferings and death of Christ. And it's the application of these merits which is done through the operation of the Holy Ghost. So, yes, we are saved by Christ, as the Protestants will quite confidently tell you. But it is through the work of the Holy Ghost that we as individual persons are sanctified. And there is a quote given here from St. Paul in the 1 Corinthians, You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And of course, Spirit in the Catholic version of the Bible has a capital letter to denote that it is the divine person. So you have essentially the agreement of St. Paul here is that the the sufferings and the, the merits of Christ by which we are sanctified are given to us through the operation of the Holy Ghost. And question eight, how does the Holy Ghost sanctify us? The Holy Ghost sanctifies us by means of supernatural grace. And in an ordinary fashion, the grace is conferred, for the most part, through the sacraments, through the sacraments and as an answer to to prayer. And so to to not receive the sacraments, to to not receive baptism is, is, well, it's quite obvious that you're not a member of the church, you are not fulfilling the command of Christ to, to be baptized, but to, for instance, only receive communion once a year at Easter time, which is the sort of the bare minimum that you can do, or to, to only go to confession once a year, which is again the, the bare minimum that you can do, is in a sense harming yourself because one of the strongest or the, the best way that grace is generally conferred upon people is through the reception of the sacraments. So to to cut out the sacraments from your life is it's a very serious thing to do to yourself. It's like chopping your arm off or chopping your leg off, is that it's going to be so much harder for you to save your soul because you are separating yourself from the great sources of grace, which are given to man in the, the normal order. And I suppose in our own situation, one should mention that the sacraments are not very mm-hmm. readily available, and so to do the the best that one can is is very important. And sometimes that involves maybe traveling once a month a great distance for a mass, maybe two or three hundred miles or something like that. And to to do the best that you can when whenever you have the opportunity to to not just be indifferent to oh there's a priest coming all right well that's that's uh, that's that's fine but i'm not interested in going to confession this month or maybe i won't receive communion i'll just show up for mass and that's that's a very sort of harmful attitude to have to yourself because when the sacraments are so rare and difficult 
to get to receive the sacraments to not do everything in your power to to make the best use of the opportunities you have is it's very foolish and the <laughs> same the same can apply to to people who who might have a priest living right there and who could go to mass every day or who could go to confession once a week or twice a week even or who could receive communion every day and to not do that is is very foolish i think so there's an argument for uh, relocation as uh, we do have an episode on that very topic <laughs> yes there there is a, an argument for that it's something that you should pay serious attention to we would like to remind you that you're listening to this is catholicism on member supported restoration radio I'm your host, Jason Gordiano, and I'm joined by Father Eldrucker. And today we've been discussing the eighth article, I Believe in the Holy Ghost. Question number nine, Father, is what are in particular the gifts of the Holy Ghost? The gifts of the Holy Ghost are, are these seven. Uh, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, godliness or piety, and the fear of the Lord. And this this distinction of the the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost, the seven, well, the seven things that the Holy Ghost in particular does for us, in addition to to grace, is from the the book of Isaiah, where it is a a prophecy regarding the Messiah who is to come, and Isaiah speaks of the attributes of the Messiah, the things that will set him apart and the, the fullness of which he will have as as a messiah. And so the the gifts are mentioned by name in this this text. And for me at least, I always think of the sacrament of confirmation whenever I hear of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, because at a at a point in the in this confirmation ceremony, towards the beginning of the ceremony, the bishop stands with his uh, with his hands outstretched over the, the people who are to be confirmed. And he calls out, may the, the spirit of wisdom descend upon these confirmants, and the choir sings amen in Latin, of course. And then he goes through all of the different gifts. May the spirit of understanding descend upon them. The choir sings amen. The spirit of counsel, the spirit of fortitude. And for me, that's, that's one of the the most moving moments in the, the sacrament of confirmation is is that uh, calling down of the gifts of the Holy Ghost upon those who are to be confirmed, and so the the gifts of the Holy Ghost are different from different from grace. It's very similar. The grace will come up with a similar result as as the gifts of the Holy Ghost, but they're nevertheless separate because. It is a special inspiration of the Holy Ghost that allows you to do something. So, for instance, we have the gift of fortitude. And fortitude is generally, we think of the martyrs when we think of fortitude. The, the idea of going out in an arena and being eaten by lions is not particularly appealing. <laughs> and so <laughs> the, the gift of fortitude is a special inspiration or movement of the Holy Ghost to enable the the martyrs to to endure bravely whatever torments the persecutors of the church might come up for them, and the persecutors of the church are quite creative. But the 
fortitude is not something that in itself is given all of the time. It's a special, special gift which is given in certain circumstances. And the, in the spiritual life, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, if one is faithful to grace and continues with prayer, there comes a point when the life, the spiritual life of that person will be predominantly governed by the influence of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. And so it's not so much we ourselves acting in, you know, perhaps going to the church, kneeling down, saying a rosary, thinking out each word, making sure that you say everything properly. And th- that is a very human effort. We're, we're very much involved in that. But the a more advanced stage of the spiritual life is that the influence of the gifts of the Holy Ghost predominates. So you are essentially passive to the inspirations that are given to you, the the gift of counsel, the gift of fortitude, to to just go and be eaten by the lions is <laughs> is not not something that most people would think of doing. But the the gift of the Holy Ghost inspires them to do that, and you you read that sometimes in the, the lives of the martyrs that a certain martyr will cast themselves into the flames rather than um, offer incense to the idols or something like that, and. In itself, that is not something that that you would do. That that would be considered suicide if you just decided to do it by yourself. But un, under the influence of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, that is a an inspiration to to preserve virtue by enduring martyrdom. So that it's it's a very special case, and that that is due to the influence of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Under fortitude, with a Finding the true mass, maybe that would be a, a small example of that. That that would. In today's circumstances, I think that the gift of fortitude plays a very important part, especially with the the persecution that you will receive from adhering to true Catholicism to reject the idea of oh, living together or that abortion is wrong or that sodomy is wrong, or that the the new mass is not Catholic. And so you'll receive a lot of hostility from various sources with respect to your decision to adhere to the true faith. And so, yes, the gift of fortitude does play a very important role in enabling us to withstand the hostility of essentially godless men in seeking out and practicing the true faith. Question 10. When did Christ send down the Holy Ghost upon his church? And I let's just go ahead and follow it up with 11. For what purpose was the Holy Ghost sent upon the church? Well, the, the Holy Ghost was sent by Christ, according as he promised, to the, whole, to the church in a visible manner on Pentecost. So you have all of the apostles there in the upper room in the cenacle, and they were essentially hiding from, <laughs> hiding from the Jews because they were worried <laughs> that well that that they're next yes the Jews cru- crucified our lord and the apostles well they didn't have the gift of fortitude so they didn't like the idea of being <laughs> persecuted and crucified themselves so they were all hiding in the upper room uh, essentially waiting for 
the coming of the paraclete whom Christ had promised. And so on Pentecost, we have, which we actually, we, we read the story of this on Pentecost Sunday in the epistle, you have all of the apostles there in the, the upper room, and there's a, a big rushing sound of wind. It's very, as if there were perhaps a tornado or a hurricane coming, and everyone in the city hears this, and it's there's this sound of the rushing of wind, but there's no wind, and that, that would have been extremely confusing and well, all of the Jews were talking about it. They were, they were gathering around in the streets, wondering what was going on. And so, after the sound of the rushing of wind, which was one sign of the coming of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles in the form of tongues of fire. And the idea, again, being is that fire is a is a good symbol of the the love of God. The the strength and intensity of the love of God that we must have is very well symbolized by fire. So the the idea that the Holy Ghost should descend upon the, the apostles as in the form of fire to, to show that he is enkindling their love of God in a, in a very perfect way and strengthening them to and perfecting them by giving them the gifts of the Holy Ghost, which enabled them to go out and fulfill the command of Christ to preach the gospel to all to all nations. Just just see in sacred scripture the the immense change that comes over the apostles. You have mm-hmm. well before Pentecost, the apostles were all hiding in the upper room for fear of the Jews. And then right after the descent of the Holy Ghost, Saint Peter goes outside and he essentially tells all the Jews, You are all very wicked people. You have uh killed the Messiah, who was promised to Israel in the Old Testament, and so you all need to repent and to convert. And there were a lot of people there. Remember, as I said earlier, the, you had the sound of wind, which caused a great commotion in Jerusalem. Everybody was all upset and wondering what's going on, so they were all crowding around in the streets. There's no TV back then, so you couldn't just turn on the news. And so the only way to find out what was going on was to go outside and so you had all of the usual inhabitants of Jerusalem there. And Pentecost is also a, a Jewish festival. So it was a, a religious sort of holy day of obligation for the Jews. So there were a lot of Jews from outside of Jerusalem who came to Jerusalem for the, the Feast of Pentecost. And so St. Peter went out and he talked to Jews from really all over the Roman Empire right there in the streets of Jerusalem. And so that there was a very, very clear change between St. Peter before the descent of the Holy Ghost and St. Peter after the descent of the Holy Ghost. And that was the visible descent of the Holy Ghost upon the church. And so then the question 11, which you mentioned, is why why did, did Christ send the Holy Ghost? And the idea is, is that Christ sent the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Ghost might teach the Church, sanctify the Church, and direct her in an, in an invisible manner, and in general, that he might impart, he being the Holy Ghost, might impart to the Church those abundant graces which Christ has merited. So the Holy Ghost is essentially the continuation of 
the work of redemption. Well, not so much the work of redemption, but he is carrying on the, the work of Christ in that Christ was on earth for only a very short time, and he, he preached and he did redeem us on the cross. But then he ascended into heaven, and he is, as man, not, not here. We, we can't you know, go to the Holy Land and see the, the person of Christ walking in the Holy Land. So the, the mission of Christ to, to sanctify and redeem the human race is continued through the mission of the Holy Ghost. And so we have, by the virtue of the Holy Ghost, by the authority of the Holy Ghost, is that the Church teaches and cleanses from sin. So the, the Holy Ghost is considered to be responsible for all of the inspirations which essentially guard the Church from falling into error, from becoming Protestant, or from mm-hmm. becoming the Novus Ordo. And so the the Holy Ghost is there to protect the Church, and so the, the idea of the quality of the Pope of infallibility is attributed to the influence of the Holy Ghost. The indefectibility of, of the Church is attributed to the Holy Ghost. And so that's, it is the Holy Ghost who who is, after the redemption of man, is is the most, in a sense, active of the three persons of the Trinity in the Catholic Church. It, it definitely seems like this is the, the one focal point that the Protestants don't agree. The people in Nova Soto are happy to, are comfortable with the fact that everything can go, quote-unquote, wrong, and, uh, and you know the Vatican too that the Holy Ghost is just working, or the, I guess in their case the Holy Spirit, quote unquote, is uh, is assisting all the other religions. <laughs> yes, I, I think that that is a uh, is in a sense in, the inherent contradiction between the Protestants or the Novus Ordo and Catholic teaching is that the Spirit of God, as they would say inspires each person with the correct inter- interpretation, as the Protestants would say, of Scripture, or, as the Novus Ordo might say, with a, a personal religious experience through the, the work of the, the Spirit of God. And so the, the idea that, for instance, that the Holy Ghost will inspire Martin Luther to, to interpret the Bible in saying that there's faith alone is all you need, and so that's Martin Luther, and the Holy Ghost inspired him directly. But at the same time, you have the Holy Ghost, according to their system, inspiring someone else to say something completely opposite. Uh, So you have other Protestants who say, no, you don't really just need faith, you need to do something else. You have to be baptized. If you're not baptized, it's no good. Or you, you have all of the different Protestant groups. There are Someone actually counted them once in this country. There are over 600 different Protestant denominations, and each one will tell you something completely different from every other Protestant group. And so the, the idea that that God, the Holy Ghost, the truth itself, will inspire you to say something completely different from what he inspired someone else is, is contrary to the nature of God. And so when one looks at it and really looks at it in detail and studies it, 
and sees that everyone is claiming, yes, we are inspired by God. We are, we are the first Baptists or the first Pentecostals or the, the first. Everyone wants to be first, I suppose. But the the fact that they all contradict each other should show someone that there's something wrong because not everyone can be right. It's impossible that these two contradictory opinions, someone might say, you need grace, adultery is bad. Someone else might say, you don't need grace, adultery is okay. And so, so you, you look at that and you say, there's something wrong here. One of them has to be wrong. And so that, that is one of the missions of the Holy Ghost is to protect the Church of Christ from error and to keep Catholic doctrine always the same and not changing so that, as the Novus Order does, they, they say now that uh, living together or fornication is okay, whereas the teaching of the Church for centuries and since its beginning, going from the words of Christ, that adultery and fornication are evil. So there, there's a contradiction, and whenever you find a contradiction, you have to you have to solve the contradiction. There has to be one of them is right or one is wrong. And sometimes, if you look at different Protestant religions, none of them are, are right. Now the all-important question 12, is the Holy Ghost still sent at the present time? Yes, yes. And you don't want to, to go so far as to, to say that everyone is going to receive a tongue of fire when you're confirmed or something like that. The The sending of the Holy Ghost that, that happens in our own day is an invisible transmission of, of grace, really. He, he is the one who infuses grace into the soul, and he is sent by the Father and the Son whenever someone reaches a state of grace or whenever there is an increase in grace. And so, yes, the Holy Ghost is still sent at the present time through the operation of grace. And for a soul in the state of sanctifying grace, that soul becomes, as it were, the temple of the Holy Ghost, and God is present there in a special manner. And as the, the, the book says here, there's a quote from 1 Corinthians, Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. So the idea is, is that a spirit, a, a spiritual thing, is present whenever it's active. So if you have, you can't, you can't really say, you know, my guardian angel is within two feet of me, and he's six feet tall, and maybe his wings are gold. You can't, you can't say that, obviously, because he's a spirit. But the, uh, an angel is present by his operation. Whenever he is active, we know he's present. So it's the same with God the Holy Ghost. So when grace is infused into the soul, God is said to be present in a, in a special way through the operation of grace. Question 13. How long does the Holy Ghost remain in the soul? Well, the answer is, is very, very simple, and it is as long as the soul is free from, the book says, grievous sin, but what it means is, is mortal sin. And the whole idea uh, is, is that mortal sin kills, as it were, the, the life of grace in the soul. And so, since the life of grace 
is how the Holy Ghost is, is present in a special manner. When you destroy the life of grace, the special presence of the Holy Ghost is no longer there. So the Holy Ghost departs when there is a, a mortal sin. And that is the answer to question 14. Does sin then drive the Holy Ghost from the soul? And question 15, but is not the Holy Ghost everywhere? Yes, and, th- and that is, is something that's a little hard to understand at first, because obviously we've just spoken about the Holy Ghost being driven away by, by mortal sin. And it, it really boils down again to the, to the question of operation. So, this, the answer in the book says here, as God, the Holy Ghost is everywhere, but as author and dispenser of grace, he is especially with the Catholic Church and in the souls of the just. So, God is everywhere because God is, as it were, maintaining everything that exists in existence. So, if, if God were to, to stop his preservative work on creation, creation would cease to exist. And so, because he is active in preserving everything, that is, that is one way of saying that God is, 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 is everywhere by his operation, by preserving everything in existence. But, and so in, in that sense, God is in hell, which is not something that you would say normally speaking. But if you think about it this way, the whole existence of hell is to manifest the mm-hmm. the justice of God. And so by, as it were, um, inflicting punishment upon, upon the damned, God is present by the manifestation of his justice in hell. So God is everywhere, including the, the people who are not in the state of grace, people who have committed mortal sin— Yes, God is everywhere, but he is not present through the life of grace in the souls of the of sinners. Well, Father, uh, thank you for, uh, for all that on the Holy Ghost and, the, and a little bit on the Trinity. Uh, as we close out this episode, uh, we have covered the Holy Ghost, the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Ghost and Pentecost. And I want to thank Father Eldrager for his time and being with us on this episode. Is there anything else you would like to add in summary before we close out our episode, Father? Actually, yes. There was one one little thing that I saw uh, in the, the answer to question 14. We sort of glossed over it. But the, the second point mentioned in question 14, that, that mortal sin profanes the temple of God, I think that's something that we don't often think of, is that the, the sin that we commit is a profanation of a holy thing. So you have, in the souls of the just, you have the three divine persons dwelling there in, in a temple, as, as it were, and that's the, the analogy that sacred scripture uses. And so the idea of committing a sin is to, to cast God off of the, the throne in his in in the temple, as it were, that that is in our hearts. And so it's a a profanation of a sacred thing, a holy thing, is is, uh, to commit a mortal sin. And I think that's not something that we usually think of, but it's it's a good meditation to to think of, is that 
not only are you offending God, but you are, in a sense, uh, defiling a holy thing, which is your own soul. And I think that's that's something that people should should bear in mind. It seems in this in these episodes we've been uh, covering a lot of reminders of uh, accountability, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it is. It is true that that's that's a, a very integral part of of reading the catechism or studying the catechism is that it has to apply to our own lives. It does you no good to know it if you don't practice it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Father. Um, so, Father, how have you been the past month as a as a newly ordained priest? Well, I've been doing a lot of firsts. There's a, a first mission to hear. There's a first sermon here. I've said my first mass in in my home parish now in Our Lady Queen of Martyrs in Michigan, and I'm replacing uh, Father Savedra now. He's he's away there. So I've done a lot of firsts. I've traveled to several different churches now and administered sacraments for the first time in in many places so it, it's it's a wonderful experience and it's, it's something that I'm constantly reminded of is this is the first time that I've done this or this is the the first time that I've been here and it's it's a wonderful reminder for me of just how important the the priesthood is and the reception that that people people are so grateful for the ability to receive the sacraments is is a wonderful thing and it's a, a very good inspiration for for me as as a young priest well once again uh thank you father and you're in our prayers and thank you for your time and uh we'll talk to you again next time as we continue this series god bless you all right god bless you too if you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode please email questions at truerestoration.org we want to remind you that This is Catholicism is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at member-supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Jason Gordiano. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.